Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report, and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Jack Stone Truitt, Nikkei Asia business and markets reporter here in New York City. Today's episode, Afghanistan one year after the Taliban takeover. On August 15, 2021, the Taliban captured the capital city of Kabul overthrowing the government of President Ashraf Ghani and reinstating the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Just over two weeks later, the United States ended its 20-year presence in the country, withdrawing the last of its military forces on the ground. It's now one year later, and the situation is dire. A food crisis spurred on by drought and a sputtering economy has left millions starving. The international community is struggling with whether and how to funnel aid through the Taliban. Many are resisting the idea of giving money to a regime that has curtailed women's rights and harbored terrorists, potentially violating the Doha Agreement it signed during the U.S. withdrawal. So what is life like in Afghanistan right now, and where does the country go from here? To find out, we spoke with Annie Forsheimer, a retired U.S. diplomat and former acting deputy assistant secretary of state for Afghanistan, and we checked back in with one of our previous guests, an Afghan woman running a network of schools in secret. You're listening to The Sound of Asia. Streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. A reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Get three months of our award-winning coverage for just $9. To redeem, just click the link in the episode description. A year after the fall of Kabul and the U.S. withdrawal, Afghanistan has become one of the world's biggest humanitarian crises. According to the World Food Program, nearly half of the country faces life-threatening food insecurity. And the U.N. says that 95% of Afghans aren't getting enough to eat. Children's medical wards are filling up. The cost of food is on the rise, and some are concerned that the coming winter could be a death sentence for many children. The hunger crisis has been brought on by a perfect storm of drought and a devastated economy. Like the rest of the world, Afghanistan is dealing with the pains of inflation and economic shocks of the war in Ukraine. But under a new Taliban regime, there has also been a collapse in foreign aid and economic sanctions, including the freezing of $7 billion in national assets under U.S. control, and isolation from the international banking system. Ordinary citizens have been left unable to access or receive money from outside of the country. The U.N. Development Program says the Afghan economy contracted by one-fifth last year. So why the continued economic isolation? Largely because it's been a year of broken promises from the Taliban. When they took over, they promised amnesty for those working with the previous government. Instead, the UN says, there have been 160 extrajudicial killings and even more arrests and detentions of former officials. They said the press would be independent, but 122 media members have been arrested or detained. They said that women would not face discrimination. Instead, the Taliban have ordered all women to cover their faces in public and to only leave their homes out of necessity. Amnesty International says that some women protesting these restrictions have faced torture and abuse. And then, of course, they've stymied girls' education. When the Taliban first took over, they temporarily closed all schools, later reopening many of them, but specifically not any secondary schools for girls. Some private schools are still operating, But for the most part, the situation is that high school girls are not getting formal education right now. At the beginning of this year, the Taliban repeatedly promised that it would reopen secondary girls' schools in March. They kept saying that up until the very morning of the supposed reopening. The day started so well for these girls in Kabul as they returned to school for the first time in seven months. 
But a few hours later, that sense of optimism had completely disappeared. Afghanistan's girls are distressed. Many are in tears. A last-minute turnaround by the Taliban on allowing girls to attend secondary school has left many wondering about their place in Taliban-ruled Afghanistan. In our last Afghanistan episode back in January, Asia Stream correspondent Monica Hunterhart interviewed a woman who was running a network of schools in secret called Srok. She uses the pseudonym Peristo for safety reasons. Monica spoke to her again this week. When they last spoke, Peristo's network included four schools. She now has six, made up of almost 300 students. Here's Monica's interview. So thank you again for taking this time. I would love to just start by asking you how your life has changed since we last spoke about seven months ago and how Afghanistan has been changing around you. Thank you for having me again. Uh, since last time we spoke, lots of things changed. I mean, the last time we spoke, lots of like female businesswomen were still having the hope that we might have the chance to go on with the work that we are having here because girls... Uh, like me, we had bigger dreams. Like uh, I was waiting to have a, a exam to pass that and be a diplomat, but it's it, it never happened anymore. I want to. Um, uh, I have the um, diploma of uh, political science and diplomacy. I wanted to be a diplomat for my country and serve this country and be in the UN as a rep- representative of my country, but. Today, we do not even have the right to have our own flag on our chests and or on our hands. We do not have the right to go out. We do not have, I mean, go out that much as we had before. We do not have the right to have uh, the outfit that we want. So um, lots of order have been there and on the table, censoring the, the social media and also the other press. Uh, they, are, they have uh, been very much restricted nowadays and they cannot even if when when an attack happens they do not have the right to go and take a report from that they're gonna like just beat them up and tell them not to shoot anything from what happened there lots of like uh, war is going on right now in the country like uh from from different terrorist groups they have found it here we we can we can name is is here uh, um, the uh, Pakistani Taliban uh, agencies are currently actively very, very much freedom in, in the freedom. They're walking on the streets of Afghanistan and uh, they are being in the luxurious luxurious hotels and they are doing whatever they want. And also, let's not even talk about Al-Qaeda, that they found the, uh, like the leader of Al-Qaeda here in Afghanistan, in the heart of Afghanistan. They killed them. So... Uh, many protest uh, protesters, uh, the girls that we we t- spoken about last time as well, they have been beaten. They have been silenced right now. We basically are in a place in the in this world. We are muted, like we are screaming, but our voices are not coming out of this geography that we have. I am not standing there in front of the Taliban to tell them that whatever you say, I will say negative of that thing. I am not their enemy. I am just a person who was, who is living in this country. I am asking for my rights. I am asking for my girls' rights. And I am not, I am not fighting with anybody because education gives me this power. I have to talk in order to solve a problem. And of course, you're helping other women and girls empower themselves through education as well. What is going on with Strzok these days? 
Uh, Strack is good dealing with the girls and anxiety and also the feelings that they have is really a big, a huge thing to do. We are um, teaching them 10 core subjects, which is uh, chemistry, physics, uh, mathematics, um, two different um, books of us, which is uh, Dari and Pashto. It is our literature. We are teaching them the Holy Book, and also there is another one with, which is about the Holy Book uh, we have here, which is called Tafsir. It is basically about the Holy Book, and also we are teaching them English, computer, and also sometimes I'm going and uh, working on them about how to use a phone, especially with ladies who are coming here, because it's a big concern for him about the um, security condition that today we have. Most of the uh, husbands are telling their wives that you do not even know numer numbers. If anything emergency happened to you, how are you going to memorize my number and call me so I can reach out to you and help you? Or you do, you, you do not even know the alphabets. Go to a home, go to a school. So if, if someday you were lost, you can read the addresses to come back to home. I mean, so we can help you or something like that. So this is the biggest motivation that they are giving to each other and they're coming to my schools and I am, I'm showing them whatever I can. Right. Well, I remember you telling me last time that you were teaching two core groups of women. So obviously the girls who are currently being prohibited from going to school, but you are also trying to help the generation that was denied education before by the Taliban when they were in power last time. You called them the 1996 generation. So yes, the educational problems, including a lack of literacy, are not just happening now or just limited to this current generation. So it also seems like you've been expanding SROC pretty massively. Could you tell me about that? Yes. Uh, yes. We have three schools in Kabul. And 226 students in Kabul, we have 45 girls in, in our um, uh, secret school in Mazar. We have two schools in Bamiyan. Nowadays, I'm trying to have uh, a school in southern Afghanistan in Kandahar and Uruzgan. And we are planning if the schools didn't reopen, which, which is not going to happen. We are more working on that to expand it. What my aim is, I do not want them to forget what they read and they were taught in the schools, inside the schools, until they are getting married on, or anything. And the biggest, um, uh, the biggest thing here currently is most of the families are not that much rich. They do not even have anything to eat for the days and weeks and even months. So they cannot take care of another girl sitting there not going to school so they are uh, facing the child marriage currently most of the girls above the 14 are getting married here in Afghanistan mm -hmm. this is what nobody takes care of and nobody talks about but this is happening here because families do not have anything to feed to many children that they have with with no future so the future is just getting married and having a husband to take care of them when we last spoke, the Taliban were still saying that they would reopen secondary schools for girls in March. But of course, that didn't happen. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like at that time when they went back on their promise? Before 23rd March, uh, before, before they asked the girls for the second time to come to school, we had very hope for this thing. I mean, the girls were really happy. But now if you look at their face, it is devastated. 
their faces are like like just a portrait of disappointment and heartbroken and we all were really saddened we are heartbroken and we know that they are never 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 ever gonna open the school like 95% or 98% I'm sure that they're they are never gonna open the schools because they have a proverb in their minds they always use this as the guideline which is a woman or a girl is from the house from the kitchen and till the graveyard she do not does not belong to anything in the middle there is nothing in the middle no gap nothing end of the conversation i know you've been speaking to various members of the international community to advocate on behalf of your girls in afghanistan in general what is most important for the world to know about what is going on in afghanistan each and every human in the world have to be shame on the, what they are doing how can you guys sleep while the nine out of 10 families do not have enough to food they they cannot even have food on their tables even one time in in like a very long period of time they do not have anything to eat how are you going to sleep on the bed i mean i have uh, had many dialogues with international people while they're talking about afghanistan where you just say afghanistan they will be just having that that sad faces and saying like oh my god don't let's not talk about that so you cannot even hear the name of my country for one minute or five minutes or one hour in a meeting. We currently are leaving that nightmare. That was my conversation with Parasto. Afghanistan made massive gains in terms of girls' access to education in the years preceding the Taliban takeover. In 2003, shortly after the Taliban's first rule ended, just 6% of girls were enrolled in secondary education. But by 2018, that figure was up to 40%. Now, once again, and for the foreseeable future, most Afghan girls above the sixth grade will be unable to access formal education. Back to you, Jack. As millions in Afghanistan go hungry and see their fundamental rights scaled back, the international community is struggling to help the country solve its problems without also supporting the Taliban regime. I spoke with Annie Forsheimer about what can be done to aid the people of Afghanistan. Here's our conversation. We should note there was some construction going on outside of her window, so there is some extraneous noise in the audio. Annie Forsheimer is a former acting deputy assistant secretary for Afghanistan and former deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Annie, thank you so much for joining Asia Stream. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, of course, a year ago, the Taliban took over Kabul, and soon after, the U.S. completed its withdrawal, which did not really go the way that anyone wanted it. And so to start, broadly speaking, what do you make of the situation in Afghanistan as it stands today? The situation in Afghanistan is uh, worse than uh, actually some of the more dire predictions a year ago. Um we, uh, those who of us who have been uh, following Afghanistan for a while never actually believed that the Taliban would, uh, you know, have a more um, inclusive or, uh, let's say, a more um, approachable vision for Afghanistan and human rights, particularly women's rights. But the speed in which they have imposed their role, the more draconian aspects of it, and, and frankly, for me, the ruthlessness with which they've put down any dissent, um, those are really all the worst case scenarios. And now to that point, it seems like the uh, kind of the, the battles within government or kind of cultural battles in Afghanistan are and have been won by the more hardline faction of the Taliban. 
And I guess I'm just wondering how likely of a scenario it is, or is there a scenario in which the more moderate faction kind of takes back control, or is there any way to, is there any kind of framework in which to embolden that more moderate side of the Taliban, which we thought we might see a year ago, but clearly, as you've said, has not come to fruition? If they're not to turn themselves into essentially a regime like Assad or North Korea, where any kind of even criticism, uh, much less you know, violent dissent is put down ruthlessly. If there's going to be any version of a negotiated way forward out of their economic crisis and their political crisis, then they're going to have to be people in Afghanistan who are, you know, not Taliban themselves, but who have the Taliban's ear. And maybe those are going to be local leaders, local religious leaders, um, business people, uh, landowners, you know, are there any groups, in other words, who can form a kind of uh, dialogue and work with the Taliban to widen the um, the approach of that that group to governing? And um, so far, those those people haven't really emerged. Um, there are some parts of the country where the Taliban's rule is less strict. Uh, it appears, but um, there hasn't been this kind of emergence of another group of local leaders. The Taliban is very, very clear that unity is the most important uh, value that they are pursuing right now. The international community, of course, can play and is playing a role here. And anyone familiar with the history of Afghanistan might be weary of that history repeating itself by supporting groups from within against the Taliban. So what what might outside support look like that doesn't repeat some of the mistakes that led to where we are now? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I, I'm intending to in every way describe a process that would be nonviolent uh, and not armed. Um, one of the easiest uh, distinctions to make is the international community deciding to arm or not deciding to arm uh, opposition. And right now there's almost no appetite whatsoever for arming people, paying for that. Uh, there's disappointment in some circles that there's no appetite for it, but there is none. Uh, the, the process I'm describing is genuinely supposed to be community-based dispute resolution. And that could be a break from past cycles of outside intervention in that, you know, I honestly think no outsider could possibly know what it would look like. And uh, it would only look like providing a bit of space for Afghans to speak with each other. Um, there is a role for the international community, I believe, in, in any country that's observing this level of gross violations of human rights, that we have to help protect, uh, you know, the human rights defenders themselves. Uh, the, the only real tool that we have on the ground is the UN assistance mission to Afghanistan or UNAMA. Uh, the Security Council somewhat miraculously back in March, only a month after the start of the war in Ukraine, uh, came together to provide UNAMA with a relatively strong mandate. Um, under the right leadership, which it has not had, uh, they could be doing more to try to empower all those voices that I mentioned. What kind of responsibility and role should uh, and does the U.S. have here? I mean, both kind of, I guess, morally or ethically, given our, our involvement, 
and kind of practically, I mean, given the war in Ukraine and rising tensions in Taiwan, what, what's a feasible role the U.S. could also have? I will point out that I was a diplomat for 30 years and served my country in a couple of war zones and in difficult environments. And I did that with pride. But I would say that the moment for the United States dominating and and being domineering over Afghan policy is over. There is no there's no reason the U.S. should be leading, in other words. And what we should be doing is working within other groups, other formats. The United Nations is one of them. And fortunately, uh, it is a good thing that we have so many restrictions in place, in a way, because we're learning to be more humble about our ability to go it alone. And we're working through the World Bank uh, through UN humanitarian agencies and not trying to do this all ourselves. Our moral responsibility is to not let this subject drop off of the front burner of groups like the UN Security Council. There we have a lot of power to keep the agenda focused on Afghanistan, among other crises, as you point out, but it cannot be allowed to just drift away. That's our responsibility. And to pivot a bit here to the more, I guess, security side of things, um, obviously, uh, uh, the Afghanistan is kind of a possible incubator for, for terrorism as a major concern and one that's growing given how the Taliban has fared. And maybe, uh, I, I guess, um, if, you could, uh, if you could explain what the kind of realistic concerns are as far as the security threat, I mean, maybe it's naive to to not worry about another sort of global terror threat. And maybe it's the threats more towards the region and towards their neighbors. But I'm um, I'm just kind of curious how how regional actors, whether it's neighboring countries or even the U.S. far away, are thinking about the, the security threat. Sure. Um, I think that also has a couple of parts in terms of an answer. The, the regional uh, neighbors actually have quite a bit to worry about. Afghanistan seems to be the hotel for everybody's terrorist group that cannot be in their territory. So there are Chinese-oriented uh, terrorists and uh, those against India and those against Pakistan and those against Central Asia. All of them are located, according to the UN's own open reporting, within Afghanistan. Of course, there's also the Islamic State. Um, so I think that the the threat, to put it briefly, is either it's directly from Afghanistan, from any of these groups that are finding safe harbor and al-Qaeda chief among them, or it is the threat that is posed by their, um, you know, their example being seen as proof of concept to other groups around the world who see the Taliban's success as an inspiration. And I'm, I'm wondering, and this is a bit of an amorphous question, maybe hard to, to hard to give a proper answer to, but I guess from an American or from a U.S. you know State Department perspective, what does it see as the role of of Pakistan and Iran and and China, uh, you know, especially with with more weight to throw around than those other two countries, which does share a border, if not the same type of borders of Pakistan and Iran? What what kind of role does it see as those regional actors in? And handling the issue because it's obviously in their backyard and therefore more of an urgent issue maybe for them than the U.S. Well, I think a, a slightly naive view was that those were countries who wanted Afghanistan to be stable because they bordered, because there would be repercussions of refugees and, and economic problems. And I think what's really the case is those countries would probably prefer Afghanistan to be stable, but they will settle for Afghanistan being weak. 
Uh, Iran has water interests with Afghanistan that are certainly served by having a weak or compliant government in place. Uh, Pakistan can dominate the way that I think it has always wanted to and planned to. And uh, China's influence through the Belt and Road Initiative and through um, mineral concessions is growing in Afghanistan. I don't think China cares that much uh, about Afghanistan. I think they want it to remain uh, out of you know the Western orbit, but they're not that interested in whether it's strong or successful or stable. Um, so I think that it's, it's having left this country to a predatory neighborhood. Uh, what we'll see is that everybody around, including you know Russia through the Central Asian states, is going to do what it likes in Afghanistan. Finally, it's it's kind of a broad question and, and maybe impossible to answer once again. But where where does Afghanistan and where do the Taliban go from here? I mean, obviously, there's all these questions of the international community and its decisions. But I mean, for the for the people in Afghanistan and the Taliban the Taliban themselves, um, you know, what what might the next year look like? I think for the people, it's it's a desperate period. There's resilience there, but a lot of the stores that people had to, to get them by the hard times are being exhausted. The drought is continuing. Uh, Afghanistan obviously was a poor country before August of 2021. So everything about its poverty and its and the dif- difficulties has been exacerbated. Uh, the economy doesn't look like it's going to truly recover even to a percentage of where it was, it's going to stay probably stagnant. Um, You know, I think the international community is able to avert a crisis of famine. Uh, This is an incredible thing to say about a country. And I think as far as the Taliban past behavior shows, they don't care. If they wanted to take over a country and have responsibility for 40 million people in it, then they would know it's their turn to give some concessions to the international community. But their their vision of unity, their vision of their ideology and what it requires is so strong that I don't think for the time being there's going to be any change in their behavior. Annie Forsheimer, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. That's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for more in-depth coverage of Afghanistan and all things related to Asia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave us a review, and hopefully a five-star rating. And a last reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. To get the discount, just click the link in the episode description. This episode was produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and myself. I'm your host, Jack Stone Truitt. This is the last of our somewhat unconventional summer episodes. Next time, Wash Khan will have returned from his vacation, so Monica and I will no longer be double teaming it, or shall I say, double streaming it. Talk then. <laughs>